0: Our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. While they're heading out, you'll wanna turn to Joshua chapter 10 uh, in your Bibles. I see the Garnier is hiding in the back corner. You guys are heading out on the trail for a couple months, aren't you? So you'll be gone for two months, roughly, okay? Okay, take a moment to pray for you. All right, let's do that. Heavenly Father, we pray for Steve and Sue as they head out on the Appalachian Trail. We pray, first of all, for safety and wellness and health and no sprained ankles or twisted knees or hurt shoulders, and uh, that you would care for them. Lord, we also pray as they care for others on the trail, and this has become something of a ministry for them, that you would give them wisdom and grace and mercy and the words of the gospel, and the words of truth and grace to the people who uh, are out there and many of whom are searching. So we ask that you would be with them, that you would care for them, and that you would equip them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We look forward to hearing of your adventures. So... Uh, Joshua 10 is, again, a long uh, and difficult passage with lots of hard names, and we're going to read it as we go through, but let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it now more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to a story of divine judgment, and it's a story we struggle with. It raises so many questions and we have so few answers. And so we pray that we would pay careful attention, that we would listen to its lessons with discernment, and we would find the one who's a warrior on our behalf. Thank you that today we're learning once again from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 10 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, the noted atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, wrote a book about approximately 10 years ago called The God Delusion. And uh, did a big speaking tour. He is something of an evangelist for atheism. And uh, he would begin each night of his speaking tour with a reading from chapter three of his book, which goes as follows The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent malevolent bully. Well, other than his obvious thesaurus skills, um, one can quickly note that uh, uh, Richard Dawkins takes great offense at God's behavior in the Old Testament. He scorns scripture's portrayal of slavery and the treatment of women, uh, but it is the Canaanite conquest that attracts most of his contempt. He uses words such as bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, and genocidal to make his point loud and clear. If you think the Canaanites deserve to die because of their own wickedness, Dawkins will zealously compare you to the Taliban. And that just sums up about how many uh, skeptics view the God of the Old Testament. And so this raises an obvious and really important question. Did God really command genocide? Did he really order Israel to wipe the Canaanites off the face of the earth? Some texts seem to suggest so, Joshua ten forty in our chapter today. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And then uh, there's Joshua 6, 21. They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And it certainly sounds like genocide. But as I will argue as we go through here, I'm persuaded that something other than genocide is going on here. And a closer look will help explain God's uh, reason for the destruction of the Canaanites and reveal how our own sinfulness demonstrates our inability to judge rightly. But before we look at those, we need to look at how the narrative is structured. Last week's account, the first part of Joshua 10, verses 1 through 15, concluded in vi- verse 15 by saying, so Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And at this point, it seems that the battle is finished, and it was. But the account of the battle wasn't finished. And so chapter 10 ends with a repetition of the same event adre- expressed in identical words. Verse 15. 43. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Verses 15 and 43 both refer to the same return to Gilgal. The first 15 verses give us a summary of the day's events with a focus on the miracle of the sun and the moon, which Frank preached about last week, while verses 16 to 43 give us an expanded version of the story that fills in more of the details. And so in the first part of the chapter, God fought miraculously. He exercised his omnipotence to make the sun and moon stand still. But he fought for Israel in other ways as well. And we see some of these emphasized in the remainder of the chapter. And so the emphasis here in all of these verses in chapter 10 is not on the people, either the Israelites or the Canaanites, but upon the Lord who as verse 42 says, and you want to mark that one, um, and Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. That's the key verse for the whole chapter. And now that we know that, we'll see three things about how the Lord fought for Israel. So first we see the Lord fought decisively. The Lord fought decisively. These five kings, uh, um, let me just start verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Mekedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found, hidden in the cave at Mekedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them but do not stay there yourself. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that had remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Mecca. Not a man moved his tongue against the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. So in the light of the ongoing rout of their armies, these five Canaanite kings, flee for their lives. And they run to the town of Mecca,da about 30 miles from Gibeon, and they hide in a cave. And the Israelite troops discover the kings in the cave and report back to Joshua. But Joshua's in the middle of a battle, and he doesn't want to halt the battle to deal with these pagan kings. So he commands his troops to use large stones to seal the opening to the cave and place a military guard on it. And thus the king's hideout becomes a prison as they await judgment. And if you remember, Joshua had earlier in the chapter prayed and the son stood still. Now in contrast, he commands his troops literally, but you, you do not stand still. The Israelite forces are told to pursue the enemy, to attack their rear guard, literally cut them off at the tail. In addition, they're to keep the enemy from entering their fortified cities where they can't be easily dislodged. But if you think about it, they're really never in any danger of losing uh, this battle because end of verse 19, the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And so even though a remnant escapes, they inflict utter defeat on the Canaanite armies. The Israelite army returns to the military encampment at Megiddo with a triumphant victory. And they go back to the cave where the five kings are trapped. Joshua commands his men to move the stones, bring the kings to him. He summons all the men of Israel to witness how he will judge the kings. And he calls his military commanders to come forward and he tells them to place their, uh, place their feet on the necks of the five kings. Now this is a symbolic act to reflect victory and defeat. It's similar to the figure, to the phrase we read elsewhere in the Bible of the enemy as the footstool under the conqueror's feet. In fact, we see that in Psalm 110 applied to uh, the Messiah directly. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That said prophetically, Psalm 110. But the Apostle Paul says, this is exactly what Jesus is going to do at the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That day at Mecca, Israel's leaders experience a sign of greater things to come. They get a glimpse of this coming victory of Jesus. When Christ returns, the one whom John calls faithful and true, he will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, Revelation 19. And on that day, Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joshua employs this act as a symbol of the future. This is what God will do to other enemies who are left in the land of promise. And they too will submit. We see that verse 25, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And so when these men place their feet on the necks of the five kings, they see God's promise back in verse eight fulfilled in a very literal way. That promise said, not a man of them shall stand before you. This fulfilled promise is meant to bolster their faith for the battles that they still have ahead of them. And the simple message is that the faithful God would continue to be faithful. God can be relied upon. Israel will triumph. They're going to inherit the land. Look at what the Lord has done. Then we see that Joshua executes uh, the five kings and hangs them on five trees. They're hung as a sign of curse and humiliation, just like if you remember it had been done with the king of Ai. These five kings are hung on trees until evening and then, in accordance with the law, they're taken down and buried. In this case, the same day, in the same cave where they'd originally hidden. And then the Israelites roll the large stones back in front of the cave to seal it. And the place that these kings thought was their hiding place becomes their grave. And the concluding statement that it's there to this very day indicates that the site serves as yet another stone monument. This is the fifth stone monument set up by the Israelites after they entered the land of promise, all of which serve to keep them from forgetting the great deeds that God has done. And notice that God has been gracious to Israel. He's giving their enemies into their hands. The Lord described Israel's earlier victories with the same language. At Jericho, Joshua 6.2, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And then at Ai, Joshua 8.1, see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. At no point could Israel ever assume their victories are due to their own military mind. God handed over their enemies one by one and gave Israel success in battle so that he might give them the land. And once again, the emphasis here is not on the people, but upon the Lord. Verse 42 again. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So first we see the Lord fought decisively. Second, we see the Lord fought consecutively. Verses 28 to 39, the Lord fought consecutively. As for Mekedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Mecca just as he had done to the king of Jericho. We're going to see the essential pattern of what he does. It's going to be repeated six times. So be patient because it's going to sound... Repetitive because it is repetitive. So then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Mekadah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglin, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back Uh, To Devere and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck him with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Devere and its king. So Israel defeats the five kings, and then they inflict further defeat on the Canaanites. And the army sweeps through the southern highlands, subduing six important. Canaanite towns. And Old Testament scholars call this uh, battle, this series of battles, or this invasion, Joshua's southern campaign. And we have a map to show it to you. And I left my pointer over here. So I'm going to grab that real quick. So here's Israel. Remember, they crossed over here. And they fought Jericho, they've been camping at Gilgal, they fought at Ai and people of Bethel and Gibeon, they made a covenant with, and now you can see it's not sort of shaded here. They're sweeping around to the south and taking on all these towns here. And when we get to chapter 11 we're going to see them come back and do the same things to the north. And uh, So this is the Southern Campaign. There's actually whole books written about this. If you're ever interested in the military side of Joshua, there's a, a, if you're military minded, it's a really interesting book. If not, you'll not like it, uh, called The Battles of the Bible, where it goes through every battle in detail from a military standpoint. And uh, so we see here, and you can just leave that map up for a while, after he deals with the five kings, Joshua turns his attention to the city of Mekedah. He captures the city and that city is right here. They think. A lot of these, you'll see, they have uh, question marks after them. So we don't really know because they're not there anymore today. Um, a lot of them, there's what they call tells, where cities used to be and are just big mountains now. The one we're sure of is Lachish and Hebron. We we know those, absolutely, because they've been excavated by biblical archaeologists. But he goes to Emekadai, captures the city, strikes it and its king with the edge of the sword, devotes it to destruction, verse 28. This is the basic recurring pattern in the remainder of the chapter. Joshua and Israel go from there to Libna, it's about nine miles. They fought against that city, and the Lord gives it to them, verses 29 and 30. Then they go five miles to Lachish. They lay siege to the city and capture it. And at this point, we see another party enter. horror king of Gezer, comes to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his army and left none remaining. And apparently, the Israelite army annihilates the Gezerite forces, leaving none remaining but there's no mention in the text of capturing the city itself. And in fact, we don't hear about the city again, and it doesn't become an Israelite possession, even though it's in the middle of the Promised Land, until 1 Kings 9, when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gives it to King Solomon as a dowry for the marriage of his daughter to King Solomon. And so that means the people of Gezer are allowed to remain in the promised land for hundreds of years, which goes against God's express commands. God said if Israel let them stay, then the sons of Israel would marry the daughters of Canaan and would be led astray into idolatry, and that's exactly what happens. Solomon marries into Canaan, and his sons are led into idolatry and immorality. So back to our text, the next town, Eglon, seven miles southeast of Lachish. And once again, Israel lays siege. They capture it, verses 34 and 35. They go 12 miles northeast to Hebron. They're successful in that battle, verses 36 and 37. And they turn south to Debir with all the other cities. This one also falls, verses 38 and 39. So why does the Lord give us this highly structured, almost formulaic account of six battles. In this section, I think God is teaching us something very specific. He's reminding us that their victory, and ours, can only be explained by his grace and mercy. See, victory has a way of making us feel overly self-confident. The Israelites did, after all, fight the battles. They experienced the blood, sweat, and tears of grueling hand-to-hand combat. And their efforts, though necessary, are not the ultimate cause of success. Had God not been on their side, they would have surely perished. How can I say that? After all, Israel seems to be winning all the battles. And one of our issues with these battles, in fact, one of our issues with the whole conquest of Canaan, is that we think Israel fits the pattern of other ancient Near Eastern conquerors. Historically, battles are decisively won when one side has the advantages of strength, strategy, experience, and the resources of a greater society. And so you kind of get the impression that Israel is some sort of military bully beating up on these hapless, peace-loving Canaanite farmers. And the truth is exactly the opposite. In reality, it's the Canaanites who have the strength, the strategy, the military experiences, and the resources of a greater society. The Israelites are the hapless folk who've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, eating the same food, wearing the same clothes, and just prior to that they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and yes, that's a long time. And now they're going up against the most advanced, heavily armored, and well-equipped armies of the day, which means Israel is the weaker party. They literally have no chance to win this fight, except for one thing, God is leading Israel in battle. And that theme drives the entire narrative of the Southern Campaign. It's the Lord who commands Israel to conquer this land. He's the one who gives the cities into the hands of Israel's army. He's the one who equips Israel for war, and he's the one who fights on their behalf. God's work causes Israel to triumph in this campaign. And once again, the emphasis is not on the people or the places, but upon the Lord. And we remember again, verse 42 and Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel so we see the Lord fought decisively the Lord fought consecutively and last the Lord fought thoroughly the very end of our chapter so Joshua struck the whole land the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So the concluding verses of the chapter summarize this third major campaign of the conquest. The description has moved from regions to boundaries to kings. And to summarize Joshua's victory, the text lists four geographical areas, the hill country, the Negev or the desert area, the lowland and the slopes. This is a description of the southern country and includes a much greater area than those six cities. Joshua uh, struck the people and the kings and in carrying out this uh, campaign, he fully obeys the Lord. Verse 40, he left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God had commanded. And then verse 41 offers this additional uh, summary by saying from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. So this is, up. Oh, where's my map? Okay, so this is sort of how they went, but they now control this whole area. If you do a line across here, they control everything south by taking those cities. And so they have basically the southern half of Israel now. Um, It's a thorough victory. Joshua captures all the kings, all their lands at one time. And it's explained. That's a part of our theme verse. He captured all these kings and their land at one time. And the narrative seems to apply that all this has been conquered and is in possession of Israel. So how do you reconcile this chapter with later chapters in Joshua and then again in Judges that appear to contradict it by reflecting a conquest not fully accomplished? And we get the answer in verse 43, because it says at the close of the Southern Campaign, Israel returns, they're all over here, and they go back to Gilgal, which is near Jericho. The text gives us no indication that Israel leaves any occupying forces in the areas they conquered. So it's quite possible the Canaanites simply repopulate the cities subdued by Israel. And verse 42 lends support to that idea. That phrase at one time, could, they used to mean that Joshua and his troops conquered the land, but they didn't occupy it. They didn't remain in control of it. Which means if the Canaanites were able to repopulate these conquered cities, then Joshua and his armies left a lot of people alive. You to turn off the map now. So that finally, having gone through that 10, brings us to the big question, sort of the apologetics issue of the day. Does God command genocide? Perhaps you've heard something like this, or somebody uh, tell you I, I just can't imagine believing in a God who would kill innocent people through war. For a few people, this is what holds them back from believing in Jesus. And admittedly, it's a difficult question. And generally, for the believer, we somehow feel obligated to get God off the hook for the deaths of so many people, as if God needs our help. And various possibilities come to mind for how this could be done. Maybe we misread the passage. Maybe it's all just symbolic. Maybe the Israelites misunderstood God's command. Many scholars think this passage is filled with hyperbole or exaggerated language, and there is some truth to that, but not completely. And furthermore, I don't think we need to get God off the hook. I don't think he wants off the hook. As painful as this issue is, it highlights what we and our culture need to hear more than ever. God is holy, people are sinful, the world is broken, and his judgment is just. If we're to rightly understand the conquest of the Canaanites, several principles have to be remembered. First, we don't get what we deserve. Every person on the planet deserves God's judgment, not just the Canaanites. Right now, all people everywhere, from the little old lady next door to the hardened criminal on death row, are all deeply sinful. And they're born that way since birth. Everyone stands guilty, not only for their own sins, but for the sin of Adam that's been passed down to them, Romans 5.12. And the penalty for sin is clear, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what does this mean? It means at any moment, God could take the life of any human as judgment for their sins. And he would be totally justified in doing so. He owes salvation to no one. And that quickly changes our perspective on the Canaanite conquest. Rather than being surprised that God will finally judge people for their sins, perhaps we should be shocked that he has waited so long to do it. Every one of us who is alive and breathing is alive and breathing solely because of God's grace and mercy. That's the first principle. Second, our expectations are way off. The timing of God's judgment doesn't match our expectations. Sometimes we think God should judge the most sinful people first and then kind of work his way down the list. God doesn't work the way we expect. And Jesus made this point. Uh, He was asked why the Tower of uh, Siloam collapsed and killed a bunch of people. And he replied in Luke 13, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, people don't have to be the worst of sinners to receive God's judgment. And he isn't obligated to judge everyone at the same time. And while the Canaanites weren't the uh, only sinful people in the world, and not necessarily the worst, their sins are pretty horrific. God drove them out of the land, Deuteronomy 18 tells us, because their practices were detestable in his sight. It shows them guilty of gross idolatry, sorcerers and mediums, sexual perversions, and sort of the big one from our perspective, sacrificing their own children to the pagan gods. And despite these practices, God has been incredibly patient with the Canaanites for generation after generation, dating all the way back to Abraham's time over 400 years earlier. And nevertheless, God's patience has run out, and judgment has come. And so it would be more accurate to look at this not as genocide, but as capital punishment. And that's sort of the big theological difference. Third, we see that God uses a variety of means to accomplish his judgment. God judges through means. Sure, he could just miraculously miraculously take every Canaanite life in an instant. But God has a history of using means to bring judgment. And at this point in the scriptures, such means have included natural disasters and disease and pestilence and drought and economic collapse. However, at numerous times, God raises up an army to accomplish his purposes. God couldn't use, you know, hurricanes or famine or anything else. In this case, he uses the nation of Israel as his instrument of judgment. And if you remember, years later, when Israel goes into exile, he uses the armies of Babylon as his instrument of judgment against Israel. These nations are cut off to prevent the corruption of Israel and the rest of the world. Just as surgeons don't hesitate to amputate a diseased limb, even if they cannot help cutting off some healthy flesh, so God does the same. This is not doing evil that good may come. It is removing the cancer that could infect all of society and eventually destroy the remaining good. God judges through means. Fourth, his judgment is just. So let me try to draw all this together. If every person deserves judgment, and we do, and if God is justified in taking a life whenever he decides to execute that judgment, and he is, and if he uses various instruments for that judgment, including human armies, then there's nothing immoral about the Canaanite conquest. To object to the conquest would require us to object to all God's acts of judgment, including Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Egypt, and all the way to the cross itself. In the end, the conquest of Canaan remains a difficult issue, and yet if the conquest is seen within the context of the Christian worldview, the objections fade away. God's judgment is just even when we don't fully understand it. And it's also important to note here that God warns Israel against thinking they're better than the Canaanites. Even though they're being used as an instrument of judgment, He doesn't want them to think that these are better people than them. Deuteronomy 9 tells us not because of your righteousness or the upright of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then God very pointedly tells Israel if they don't follow the Lord and his law, they'll suffer the same fate. And of course that happens hundreds and hundreds of years later with the exile. Ultimately the judgments on Canaan, though, have a theological reason they are precursors, terrible as though they are, to the ultimate judgment that awaits at the last day. And that judgment comes at the hand of our warrior shepherd. The big idea of Joshua 10 is that the Lord is a warrior. While Joshua is the leader on the ground, his prayer indicates who stands behind the victory. And the passage repeatedly speaks of God's action on behalf of his people. And if we widen our gaze to the whole Bible, it's a critical revelation of who Jesus is. He's not simply mild-mannered and lamb-like. He is a warrior, he is a lion who's ferocious in his justice. And so we shouldn't be afraid to worship him as our divine warrior or cry out to him for help and protection. At the same time, it's a warning that refusal to repent invites his anger and should produce fear in our hearts. We go through the book of Revelation in Sunday School and right near the beginning, the Apostle John reveals Jesus' words, Revelation 2.16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This war happens with the words of Jesus' mouth, words of redemption and judgment. And to illustrate how humanity will be both redeemed and judged, John turns to the language of the warrior. For a final time, we see Revelation 19, the nations rage against God and his anointed. And as in Joshua 10, the nations gather for battle against God's army. Turn with me to Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Judgment and justice must come in the form of ultimately removing evil from the world. And that's so the peace of God can once again be fully present in the world. And it's this way, through the blood, but also through the judgment of Christ, that our world is redeemed. Through his death and resurrection, everyone can be redeemed, but anyone who doesn't come to him won't be redeemed. They will be judged. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So let me ask you, what's your mental picture of Jesus? Do you think of that portrait of him with a lamb across his shoulders or under his arms? And yes, he is a shepherd and a gentle shepherd. But if you think about it, gentle shepherds in the ancient world world, weren't gentle. They fought for their sheep against lions and bears. They guarded the sheepfold with a knife in their teeth. They're ready to spill blood to protect their flock. This is the Lord, the King of the nations, who is a warrior for his people. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a warrior? fierce, strong, mighty, fighting for every inch of territory in your soul and call, calling upon you to fight along right behind him. Psalm 24, 8 asks, who is the king of glory? And then it answers its own question, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is the king of glory? Jesus Christ is the king of glory, who fought and led and died. Jesus Christ who sweat and great drops of blood in the garden in anguish over the nature of the battle in which he must engage for us. Through his death and resurrection, Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ's death secured our pardon, enabling us to face the final day of judgment with confidence. We realize that while we were enemies of God on account of sin, no better than the morally bankrupt Canaanites. We were reconciled by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. It's Jesus who's won our souls. And we have no right to try and take our souls back if we belong to him. We're to enter into the battle for our own lives and futures knowing the Lord fights for us and before us and with us. And we don't give in because the Lord didn't give in for us. And we hold on to him even when struggle and doubt and temptation is at its worst because the Lord holds on to us forever and he will never, ever, ever give up or let us go because warriors don't do that. Amen. Amen. And it's time to thank God that he gives us Jesus Christ as our divine warrior. So take a moment to do that now, and after a little bit, I'll close. Our Lord and our God, Thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we refuse to see your judgment because we already know we don't deserve your mercy. And so we thank you for the one who has mercy on us, who fights on our behalf. Thank you for the King of glory who fought and bled and died and who secured our pardon, enabling us to face the final day of judgment with confidence. Help us to find strong encouragement in the one who's won our souls. Teach us to worship him as our divine warrior. Lead us to cry out to him for help and protection. And work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua. As we learn to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Joshua, draw us ever closer to the one who is a warrior for his people, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.